Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So as some of you know, I have a bit of an obsession with the Japanese poet Basho. And every once in a while, a new book comes out where some academic has retranslated poems for the 30th time, you know. And uh, so I came across one last night that I have to share. Because I think it's directly related, of course, to um, the heart of what it is that we're practicing. Seventeen syllables, three sentences, goes like this. The tree from whose flower this perfume comes is unknowable. I'll read it again. The tree from whose flower this perfume comes is unknowable. In the same way, we could say that um, the place where thoughts come from is unknowable. The place where our thoughts go um, when they pass through awareness is outside of our mental sphere. It's outside of our reach. But when you start taking this line of inquiry further, two things happen. One is we recognize that the base or the root of everything is unknowable. And the other half of that equation is in that unknowableness. Um, There is no ignorance. Um, There's actually a kind of knowing. So um, I think this leads nicely into the beginning of the third um, section of the Satipatthana Sutta, where um, the Buddha was teaching in the second phase um, and in the first phase a kind of return to the body or a meditation or a contemplation of the body in such a way that there is only enough thinking and only enough knowing and only enough understanding 
that we can bring mindfulness and awareness to a particular situation or to a particular object. Um, and in a way, those first two foundations have so much to do with using other ways of knowing other than just the kind of knowing about uh, mode that our mind is usually in, knowing why. And when you go to a particular tree um, whose flowers have a perfume that, you know, stops you when you're walking or catches you when you're daydreaming, you stop. Um, um, You can't actually um, know why or how that perfume comes to be. And in fact, those questions in the face of a flower that seems like a pun after what you said this morning. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, are sort of useless. You know, it's almost like we're asking the wrong question. We're meeting the flower with the wrong vocabulary or the wrong attitude. So at the beginning of the third phase of the Satipatthana Sutta, contemplation of the mind or mindfulness of mind, um, the Buddha starts with a kind of rhetorical question where he says, and how bhikkhus, and remember, that's you, um, does one, in regard to the mind, contemplate the mind? And I always like that each section starts with a question. How do you actually do this? How do you do this? Herein, a monk knows the consciousness with lust as with lust. So you could say the state of mind with lust present as lust present. The consciousness without lust as without lust. The consciousness with hate as with hate. The consciousness without hate as without hate. The consciousness with ignorance, as with ignorance. The consciousness without ignorance, as without ignorance. So what the Buddha is saying here is that when you look closely at the nature of mind, And he's not saying the mind. In this translation, it's consciousness. Um, I don't know what the mind is. I mean, do you know what the mind is, really? I mean, we have an experience of the mind. We know it through inference. It's like pointing at your ego. You know, can you find your ego? I mean, we use the term linguistically as if there is such a thing as an ego. But we all know that you can't actually find your ego, although you can point to it. And, or you have friends and family who can point to it. 
Um, and yet, at the same time, we can't actually locate a thing that is ego. And I think we've covered this a lot this year. Um, but likewise, the same is true for this umbrella term mind. And yet, the Buddha seems to be saying that even though there may not be this thing called mind, there are certain patterns that we call mind that repeat. And they have a kind of um, uh, set of roots. And um, even though these roots are fluctuating and arise in different ways in different conditions, um, the root patterns, especially the negative patterns of mind, um, are three. And so this is what he's referring to. And the first is raga, which can be translated um, sometimes as desire, sometimes as attachment. Um, most often it's translated as greed. Um, and sometimes it's also translated as lust. And it's, it's interesting in English how we have so many words to talk about raga. Um, but again, a, a sense of desire or craving or attachment, greed or lust. And this is sort of the first um, unwholesome root. And I always have a little bit of discomfort with the word unwholesome. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's much better to think of it as unskillful. Uh, this is for me, personally. I, I like the term unskillful more than unwholesome. Um, the second root that the Buddha points out is, um, uh, in Pali, it's dosa, which is um, usually translated as anger, ill will, um, aversion, or the most popular translation is hatred. <coughs> and the third uh, root the Buddha points out here is moha, which um, can be translated as delusion, ignorance, or bewilderment. Here it's translated as ignorance. My favorite translation of moha is um, from Stephen Batchelor, who translates it as confusion, which is kind of like a running around in circles. And so... <laughs> Psychologically, it seems what's being implied is that when you look at negative karmic patterns, so these are patterns of mind that you have received or that you're acting out, usually a negative pattern is um, made up of some combination of these three roots. Um, greed, ill will, or confusion. 
And, you know, if you look at your mind during the day, uh, you spend a fair amount of time in each one of these realms. Um, some days and in some situations, one realm, of course, more than others. Um, my week this week, I think I've spent most of the week in confusion and bewilderment. But, you know, you can look at your day and just see which one of the roots sort of dominated uh, that day. But if we just ended there, it would seem too simplistic. Um, the Buddha is saying something much more complex about these roots, which is for the meditator, one knows both the presence of these states of mind and also the absence. So again, um, con knowing consciousness with lust as with lust Consciousness without lust as without lust. Consciousness with hate as with hate. Consciousness without hate as without hate. And so on. So to know both the presence of these mind states and also the absence of these mind states. Common in the Buddha's teaching, especially in the Pali Canon, um, is that when there's an absence of an unskillful state, a skillful state arises. So for those of you who studied in other Buddhist traditions, like later in the Tibetan tradition, for example, there's a lot of talk about cultivating positive mental states. So, for example, you hear a lot about cultivating compassion, cultivating kindness, cultivating generosity. The Buddha didn't really speak in those terms. In a way, there's a logic in his teaching that it's not so much that one is cultivating those positive states, but rather in the absence of the negative root, the positive one shows up. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. uh -huh. mm -hmm. But when I think that something like metaphor, yeah. you are cultivating qualities there. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and there's debate whether the Buddha actually taught meta practice in the way that we practice it now. Um, it, it's possible that's more of a Mahayana influence later on. So, again, you know, looking closely at the Satipatthana Sutta and how he was teaching meditation. Right here, you can sort of see this logic present where he's saying, I mean, without getting into a historical scholarly debate about it, you can see how he's not saying, um, you know, notice, for example, um, ways that you can cultivate, well, we haven't got that far into it yet, but notice in the meditation how you can cultivate generosity, for example. He's actually speaking about noticing the absence of greed. So it's just interesting to start to see this a little bit, where there are complementary opposites, where it's not just that you have negative states, but inside those negative states are also the positive counterpoint. You have both present in that experience. And so you have a choice. Yeah. 
Yeah. This yes. Yeah. <coughs> but when we go further, we'll we'll see how this is this is generated. Yeah. <coughs> when people talk about the fallow field, uh-huh. when you um, just let the land rest, you're not planting and planting. You just let it be. Then from that comes the the growth, the stronger plant, the new ideas, whatever yes. metaphor you want to use. Yeah. So it's the idea of the field allowing it to be fallow, and then see what. Yeah, happens. for sure. It's like the poem we talked about earlier this morning. You know, if you want to study death, then um, study cherry blossoms and chrysanthemums. And, you know, if you ever study a cherry blossom, even in its death, um, um, the life of the whole organism that is tree and you studying and so on comes right to the forefront. So we can't actually split these things up so cleanly. So again, you know, just to emphasize one more time that the Buddha is suggesting here not just looking at the negative roots, but also knowing their absence. Also knowing their absence. And we're going to talk about this in a little while clinically because um, so many of us are trained in our education about psychology to look for the negative, to look for the negative roots. And I want to do a little exercise later today about um, um, working with clients where, you know, I'm going to ask you to pick a client uh, with whom you often focus on the negative and find strategies so that when those negative states are not present, you as a clinician can acknowledge that. Because the Buddha is not saying to focus only on the negative. saying also notice the absence of the negative state. And I think sometimes as clinicians, um, when anxiety enters the room, we're on it. When dissociation enters the room, we're all over it bringing up how dissociation is occurring, how we don't feel connected. But for someone who often dissociates, when dissociation is not happening, are you on it? You know? Are you on it? Um, When anger is not present, are you on it? You see? So are you able to give equal value to both? And, um, of course, with different people at different times, you're going to answer that question differently. And I'd like to experiment later today with thinking about clients where there isn't a very good balance in, the, in what we're focusing on. Um, and sometimes that's actually a kind of counter-transference. Because we can pick up on what they focus on and go with that. And the opposite is true. Sometimes somebody is so not focused in a particular area um, that we can totally focus on it. So we're going to play around with this later later today. Um, but first, again, just in our own experience, being able to notice um, greed and the absence of greed. Ill will, the absence of ill will, confusion and the absence of confusion.
Um, the word for these roots in uh, Sanskrit is uh, klesha, and the word in Pali is uh, kalesa. And um, it's interesting because klesha actually means hindrance, um, but it also relates to um, the path out of suffering. So in a way, these positive, or sorry, these negative roots or unskillful or unwholesome mind states are also the path um, into their opposite. It's, it's like homeopathy or something. So non-greed, which is the opposite of greed, in its full expression is generosity. So in the absence of greed, generosity arises spontaneously. When we're dominated by greed, we're dominated by self-interest and protection and security and fear and so on. And in the absence of greed, um, generosity is present. That's the full expression of non-greed. Um, the second klesha, the, um, in the absence of uh, hatred, um, is non-hatred, which is compassion. And the word I like to use is love. So the full expression of the absence of hatred is love. And lastly, um, the uh, expression of the absence of confusion is non-confusion. <laughs> and non-confusion is wisdom or clarity. And as some of us know so well, sometimes you have to spend a lot of time in bewilderment to get clarity. <laughs> a lot of time in confusion before the opposite is revealed. And you know, a, a personal example that, that I, you know, in my experience, <coughs> like I find in the formal meta practice so much benefit of being able to find a kind of a quality of kindness that um, hangs around for a while. But I find in day-to-day -day life, sometimes when I go around trying to cultivate compassion, um, it, it feels like so much striving, you know? And so um, last year, when I was preparing for uh, this section on um, the third foundation of mindfulness, um, I started to notice how when hatred isn't actually around, there is a kind of care that was just sitting there under the surface that, although needs to be cultivated, um, actually is there as a kind of resource behind the, um, the hatred. And that was, you know, I'm articulating it clearly now, but last year it was such a big insight for me to see that. Um, because I often think that behind hatred is just 
nothing. You know? And that doesn't seem to be the case. Behind hatred is actually the quality of love. Behind confusion um, isn't nothing, it's wisdom. It's wisdom. So this is, you know, good advice. Mm-hmm. Helpful, helpful, uh, helpful um, to hear, I think. So you could say that this, this poses a question, you know, do you cultivate positive qualities or do you really get to know the absence of the negative ones that really dominate? And this is really something for you to, to explore. I think you, you can each come up with a different response. Um, yes? Well, I'm just uh, having a question because I think the positive ones do need cultivation and learning at some point. If, like if you have anger and if you don't know what non-anger is, if, if you haven't had expression of knowing and feeling of it, then yeah. you can't be under it. And yeah. I'm thinking about when people have extreme trauma. To me, that's like a, you know, you're talking about the land, you have a nuclear explosion, nothing is going to grow. Mm-hmm. So how... You know, some of that feeling of getting through all that anger or trauma. Yes. And if it was there, um, yeah. it somehow has to be cultivated. The seed has to get put back in. Sure. That yeah, yeah, let's not take too passive a view on it. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, it's not so much about passivity, but about <clears throat> trust. That if you trust that exploring the absence of anger is going to reveal love. Um, It allows you to trust that there is some potential growth there. Mm -hmm. And as the bud starts to, you know, uh, flow um, out of that um, mental state, um, there is something to be cultivated. Um... But you don't have to be so quick to get rid of the anger to make the love happen. You see? I, I think that's sort of the basis of that, to me, says there's the goodness of people, or there's some goodness in all people. We have yeah. to trust that that's true yeah. of, of every person. Yeah. And then if you say, you know, if you really trust that there's the goodness, then you also have to trust that there's the hatred. Mm-hmm. Right? If you really trust that there's a basic generosity in us, you, you also have to trust that there's a basic greed. Yeah? Oh, but we don't want to do that. We don't, we don't, we really want to, I mean, in a way there's this fundamentalist part of all of us where we want to believe that actually really there's only one. Either you're inherently bad or inherently good. And it's really hard to hold both. That actually we're both. We're both. Um, and one of the um, one of the things that's so helpful about that is to not look at uh, negativity outside of us in such an objectified way. Not to look at evil as something out there or the hell realm as, like, 
a spatial temporal metaphor for something outside of us, but rather to see that evil is a potential in all of us. Hatred is a potential in all of us. And those of you who do work with people, um, like in prison, for example, who've committed crimes, um, you know that when you experience intimacy with somebody who's done something really awful, um, one of the thing that can be one of the things that can be so uncomfortable about it is you recognize that in yourself. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who who worked in prisons and was working with psychopaths. This was kind of her expertise. And she had one sort of famous psychopath who she was working with. And one day they were working together and he just started in on a monologue about her. And everything he said was dead on accurate. And then she recognized in his accuracy that they were totally equal that she had him figured out and he had her figured out. So she said to him, you know, we are so similar. And then he agreed. This was sort of their moment of connection. And he said, yeah, we actually, our minds are equal. You know, one of us is not better than the other as a psychopath. And then she said, except the big difference is you're behind bars and I'm not. (laughs) You know? So there's a sense where there's an intimacy that happens and there's a recognition that um, we have a choice um, at some level of how we're going to act on these potentials. (coughs) But you can only have that choice if you acknowledge that both are there. That both exist. Yeah, that both exist. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and in therapy, you know, you know, when somebody comes in and has done something awful, and you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be awful in a legal sense, but there's a kind of shame in something they've done. Um, how so much of your work is just to hold the space enough that they can be able to say what they want to say without the judgment, and then how um, part of your work is is to help them recognize that they actually have that potential. They have the potential for anger. They have the potential for violence. They have the potential for greed. Um, How powerful would it be um, for people who work with, like doing management consulting uh, with CEOs to be able to help them recognize their greed? Like to actually acknowledge, yes. I mean, instead of sort of, you know, I'm doing this work and this great philanthropic activity of this arm of our corporation, but can you also recognize the greed? You know? And like, if we're able to recognize some of these potentials in us that we don't want to see, um, um, our tendency to act them out decreases. You know? Because there's a we can we there's a friendship there with them, and so I think for those of you who, in the second foundation of mindfulness, were starting to get bored of tracking your feelings, uh, this is really where the Buddha starts speaking about mental states in such a precise and accurate way. 
um, that really shows us something about our minds. Yes? On the way here, I was listening. I can't remember her name, but the woman who's here from this village, Zendo, and I was listening to Thank you, Roshi. Yeah. And I was listening to her CD here this morning. She was talking about greed and the near enemy of greed being generosity to the point of that you weren't taking care of yourself. So Yes. And I found that really helpful to be able to recognize that as greed when I'm giving more than what I can give for the sake of giving. Yeah. I heard a teacher once say it's better to give a mouse a crumb at Christmas time than to give somebody a flat screen TV because they wanted one and in a way what they were saying was you know the intention in our activity is so important and so you can take something like greed um and um, um, maintain um, a kind of greediness in your acts of generosity mm-hmm. that falsify the generosity or negate the generosity because of the intention. For sure. Yeah. And that's why, you know, we don't have the time to get into near enemies and far enemies, but. The, these states have near enemies and far enemies, and a far enemy is the exact opposite, which is what we've been talking about. But a near enemy is something that is so close to it, but not actually it, that it's confusing. So yes, a near enemy of greed can be uh, of generosity, um, can be um, overfunctioning. Yeah. Giving it all away. Making yourself small. Yeah. Which doesn't look like greed, does it? It looks often like generosity, but it's, you know, been twisted. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I guess I feel that um, it's necessary, or it feels necessary, to have some... Uh, control on the negative. I, I think that it's easier to do the negative. It seems to be easier to do the things towards entropy, towards destruction, yes. and that it takes more energy, thought, and cultivation to do these other more positive type emotional things. Yeah. I acknowledge both within, but I believe that the other impulse it's easier because it's, it's, it's through laziness that it comes out. Yeah. It doesn't require anything to really stop it. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, when we were on, one of the things Norman and I were talking about after the retreat in the spring was that something that came up a lot in the interviews for people that it seemed in terms of the meditation technique that people were getting a lot of benefit from was when we were talking about recognizing sensations and then also watching them pass away. And just the impact of actually being able to see something you were entangled in stop. 
and then there just be nothing after for a little while and actually see a whole you know mental pattern that can be so torturous just start to dissipate and the kind of concentration that's needed to keep watching it dissipate and then just watch it go away and then the, the Buddha's focus here is saying really know the absence really know the absence of um, a state of mind that is greedy really know what the absence is like when you feel hatred um, maybe you're not skilled at watching the hatred dissolve but when there is a moment of non-hatred stop and recognize that and, uh, and the same is true with confusion to really recognize that I, I don't know a lot about astrology but all, almost everyone I know right now is in a state of confusion it, and somebody told me that there is a kind of astrological thing going on right now around um, Mercury and that um, there's a retrograde <laughs> seems there's always a retrograde in <laughs> And uh, so around communication and making big decisions. And, and I, I really see it, you know. And, um, but uh, I have a friend who um, uh, I went to visit. And when I got there, she was watching uh, Grey's Anatomy. Mm-hmm. That show, Grey's Anatomy. And um, she was sort of curled up, wrapped in like six blankets, watching Grey's Anatomy. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know you watched TV. She's like, it's the first time all week I felt so good. (laughs) And uh, in a way, in that moment, it was her kind of recognizing that it was the first day of the week she was not caught in confusion. She's been trying to change schools for her daughter and not sure what the right decision is. It was like the first moment it stopped. Thanks to Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) Um, are there certain practices that um, are different from staying with sensations and allowing them to fade that are about the mind states and watching those pass? That's, that's the section. Okay, and, and yeah. is it the same practice and process? Or is yeah, the general sense is that first the Buddha wants you to be able to watch a breath come and go come and go and I'm sure you can start to see now that if you can't really do that with your breath it's going to be hard to do that with feeling and so the second foundation is just feeling and body you know allowing um, feeling to come and go and now he's getting into the mind you know allowing mind states to come and go to really know when they're there and really know the absence and he's going to get into some really interesting detail here about how to do that. So that's the third foundation. And then the fourth foundation is basically everything. Not only everything, but he then goes through all of his teaching and wants you to look at that um, through the mindfulness practice too. So, yeah. I'd like to keep going a little bit more. Is everybody, are we, yeah?
Are there any more questions, technical questions about this before we we go further? <coughs> yeah. And just to clarify, I mean, while you're talking, I, um, it, is, the, is what you're describing an embracing or an opening to an entire state? So, like you said, the presence or non-presence. So not focused on anything other than just being open to the possibility of all of it. Like I keep doing this because I imagine it coming around. So is that what you're? Yeah, yeah. And the Buddha is just trying to kind of break it up a little bit for those of us that have a sitting practice. Is that if we just say all of it, sometimes it's a bit too wide. Um, so he's just trying to go sequentially, and I think sometimes. People get frustrated at the sequence and all the repetition and the details. Um, and uh, I think that's valid sometimes. But I think it's also good to kind of experiment with that. Because for in different times in our practice, we're going to have these particular states that he's describing show up. And it's interesting that he's saying, you know, when anger is showing up, um, allowing anger to unfold but also know the absence of anger. And it also, he seems to be saying that if you haven't been able to just do that at a breath level, it's probably going to be hard to do with mind states because we don't have that muscle working properly. Yeah. So there's a kind of training happening there. Yeah. So I want to add my own interpretation of this, which is that it seems that what he's highlighting here, and actually we talked about this a little earlier with that kind of inner wisdom part of us, but what he's highlighting here is for you to be able to discern what's skillful and what's not skillful. Right? So this isn't just about watching, but it's also about learning something about states of mind that are skillful and states of mind that are not skillful. And how can you recognize um, where hatred is uh, skillful and where it's not skillful? And so that's one of the ways that I read this, this section. Um, is that it's not just about noticing presence and absence. It's also about cultivating discernment and being able to see uh, what parts of these mind states are helpful and what are not helpful. And again, I think if you're using the word wholesome and unwholesome, that doesn't really work so much. But I think if you're using skillful and unskillful, we can see, hey, you know, there, there are parts of anger that um, are really helpful and they show us something and then those same aspects of anger with a little more fuel are unskillful but if you just say anger is unwholesome it's too simplistic it's much too simplistic yes about what we do with the original arising of anger 
as opposed to the anger in and of itself that's arising? Because, for instance, yeah. if I grasp my anger, mm -hmm. or I'm acting out in anger, then that would be the unskillful. Yeah. But, you know, anger is just anger. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and if you can be able to relate to it without identifying with it, um, no problem. Yeah. But I don't know about you, but when anger is in full force, I'm angry and I'm right. And they're wrong. And uh, I'm totally identified with it. When, when things are really confusing, I feel confused. And I'm confused. Or other people are confused. And I'm right. So, you know, when these moods come in full force, we're automatically identified. And this is the beginning of starting to work that out. Yeah. And so what we're discerning is that there are certain states of mind that lead to happiness, and there are certain states of mind that lead to unhappiness. Sukha and Dukkha. And this kind of discernment is basic to the Buddha's teaching. Absolutely basic to the Buddha's teaching. I'm going to say one more thing about this, and then um, we'll have lunch. Um, so I've said that you know one of the ways that I interpret this is cultivating discernment, cultivating wisdom. Um, the other piece that I think is so important, and I think in the next phase of the dialogue about you know, with Buddhism and psychotherapy that we're going to enter is around ethics. Because I think the Buddha is bringing a moral dimension to psychology here, a moral dimension to meditation here that is worth paying attention to. That he's, act, you know, he's saying that, you know, that certain mental states are not skillful. And he's listing them. There's three of them. Right? That greed is not skillful. That hatred is not skillful. That um, confusion running around in circles, like even indecision, um, is not skillful. And so there's a kind of value being given <coughs> to some states over other states. And... Uh, I think this is going to tie really beautifully into the precepts and seeing how the precepts, which we've covered a little bit, um, are really ways of changing our minds at very deep levels. And sometimes they're taken as rules and sometimes they're taken as um, kind of spontaneous occurrences of... Um, um, 
interconnectivity. So that's the last thing I'll say about this section uh, before we go further. Um, and, you know, we've covered a lot, so I think it might just be good to sit with this. Was, is to see, A, the kind of presence of something, the absence of something. B, seeing the beginning of a way of discerning for yourself how that something, in this case, you know, greed, hatred, or delusion, um, is skillful and where it's not skillful. And then also seeing how um, through the lens of our interconnectedness, we see that you being able to discern what's skillful and not skillful has a kind of moral implication. Not just It's not just about you in your own meditation sphere and inner life, but actually you in relationship. So, for example, people with addiction, a lot of times they're not motivated to change until they see how their action is unskillful in their community. Because, I mean, we can all handle a certain amount of unskillfulness and bad habit in our own self. But sometimes we don't feel motivated to change until we see that it's not just us. It's not just me and this body that's being affected by my habits. It's also so many people around me, you know? And when we see that, there's more motivation to change. Yeah. Any thoughts or anything come up around this? Yeah. I have a question about the. I don't quite get how, why confusion is in the same state of mind or the same level, state of mind as anger and lust or greed. Mm-hmm. To me, it seems different category. How so? I think lust or greed and anger affect more other people, your relationship with other people, and confusion, mm-hmm. bewilderment is more you and yourself. It will affect yeah. other people, but it's more you and yourself. I mean, I think what you're saying is possibly a linguistic thing because, you know, I'm choosing the word confusion because I like that translation, but the, the translation that's usually used is delusion. And um, how much violence is caused by delusive thinking um, that's something to contemplate. Um, I was reading the newspaper this morning, and it's amazing. You know, some of you may have been—I haven't been following it. I just learned about it today. But you know, Barack Obama for the past few days has been talking about how the only way to um, deal with the. Um, um, Uh, new nuclear weapons being built in Iran is to uh, make public a commitment by the United States that they're going to stop building nuclear weapons. So the only way that anything will change in terms of how 
uh, nuclear arms are being created and, and sold um, is for the country that's telling other countries to stop, to stop. This is an amazing thing. I mean, this is a really amazing thing. Um, the President of the United States is suggesting that before he can tell anybody to stop doing something, he needs to stop. And he, you know, the country. That, that's an amazing thing. That's an amazing thing. Yeah. Um, and so again, getting back to what's being said here, it's so easy to see these activities happening outside of us. But how to recognize them in us. And sometimes in equal measure, which is so disturbing. Because, you know, I want to think of myself as primarily generous. And so if I think of myself as mostly generous, then it's going to be hard to really admit to the amount of greed that can show up. Um, and uh, it's helpful. It's helpful. And like I was saying, in terms of your work with clients, you know, it's also really helpful to um, um, bring the shame down when you recognize your your capacity for these for these things. You know, my, my son and I talk a lot about. Um, you know, greenhouse gas and the environment. And we were on our way the other day to a, a party, and I went to the liquor store with him to get a bottle of wine. And this fancy Aston Martin pull, pulls up beside us. And um, we got out of the car, and it's such a beautiful car. We're walking around the car, and he, and he kept, like, he kept saying, is this a gas guzzler? <laughs> And, and we got into this really interesting conversation about how you can look at this car and have a kind of value system that, you know, doesn't support making that much money to buy that car or maybe spending all that money on that car or the amount of gas that car might take or and also stand around that car and see that this is one of the most beautiful pieces of human engineering. The interior and the wheels and the color blue of this car was so magnificent. And we were there maybe for 20 minutes looking at every detail of this car, you know. And then, you know, of course, the man comes out and he just loves that we're looking at his car. <laughs> and uh, um, so. Um, yeah. Here, have the car. <laughs> no, thanks, it's okay. I'm a renunciate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's have a lunch break.